Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors, featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's Fidelity Connects podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions with portfolio manager Dan DuPont sitting down with host Pat Bolland. For Canadian investors, Dan manages Fidelity Canadian Large Cap Fund and Global Value Long Short, among other products. In today's discussion with Pat, Dan shares how he is identifying opportunities in the volatile market period we're in. This includes short selling in his Global Value Long Short Fund. Dan notes his long opportunities focus on quality companies, sustainable businesses, and not overpaying for a stock. With short opportunities, he looks at opportunistic shorts and merger arbitrage. Please note there were a few slides displayed to the event audience when this was initially recorded. Also, for more content focused on Fidelity's alternative lineup, you can check out a recently released podcast featuring another session from this same event, with strategist Rory Poole speaking with portfolio managers Dave Way and Brett DeLay. Today's podcast was recorded on October 14th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you again. Good to be here. It's very good we haven't done this live in three or four years. In a long, long time. Too long. Yep. Okay, so let's do a little recap. Uh, 2022, mm-hmm. uh, talk to me about the markets and where your head's at right now. Yeah, so it's been a wild ride, obviously, the last few years with COVID. But I've been listening, like everyone here, to the presentations in the last two days and thinking about it. And I was thinking about how to encapsulate it quickly on stage to help people explain where I am at um, and what I'm thinking right now. And there's obviously two very simple things to think about is where we are from a macro perspective and trying to see three feet ahead of us and what is priced in asset markets. So I want to start with this side, which is where we are right now. And, you know, I'd like to start with just two quick anecdotes, and then we'll go into some very specific, more boring numbers. But to me, personally, there's one day where two things happened. I was um, standing on my brother's porch and uh, noticed his his neighbor had sold the house. And the house was sold for $1.5 million. It's a suburb of Montreal. And I said, wow, so what did he do? He had owned the business, sold the business. He's 45. He's he's retiring. I'm like, oh, wow, that's kind of young to retire. Like, oh yeah, well there's only me and another guy that's left on the house that works on the, on, the, on the house block. So there's 20 houses on the block. There's two people that work because everybody's made so much money with their house that they've just decided to retire. And on the same day, I have a discussion with my son's girlfriend who's 16. She works at Tim Hortons. Everybody that works at that Tim Hortons is between the ages of 16 and 20. The manager is 22. 
And she was telling me that this lady who was 55 years old came in and asked for a frappuccino, which is not sold at Tim Hortons, and was arguing with her that they actually were selling frappuccinos and she was an idiot and that she should make a frappuccino. So she made something that looked like a frappuccino and gave it to her. But this is kind of, um, you know, rapidly uh, in, in two anecdotes, you know, an exaggeration of where we are a little bit as a country. We have people who've made a lot of money with real estate through, the, through COVID or asset prices. And on the other side, you have people who are less fortunate in terms of wealth that received a lot of checks that are slowly going through those, those checks and are seeing the CPI and are getting hurt by that. So the idea that governments have and that central banks have is, okay, we flooded the system with cash, and clearly they did, and they overdid it massively, and we're going to go into some numbers that explain that. But now they need to recede that giant amount of cash to get things back a little bit closer to normal. And the question is, how fast are we going back to normal? And what, what are asset prices doing relative to that? So we had some great examples. You know, yesterday Jeff was saying, uh, investment grade bonds are yielding over 7%, and that's, that's really high. And so, you know, we're on the way there. And in my funds, I'm trying to, I'm a, I'm a naturally bearish person, so I'm trying to get the, there and, and buy things when I think they're, they're cheap, cheapish. Um, it's not easy, but I'm trying to do it. I've been doing that uh, all year, both on the long end and the short side. So if we take Canada, for example, you know, CPI is very, very high. Uh, and CPI, what is CPI? CPI is basically how much more it costs for the bottom 40% of the population to live. The top 60, at least right now, is very, very different. It's historically been different. Right now, it's unbelievably different. You know, people who have uh, a decent amount of money are traveling. They're spending a lot of money on airfare, on hotels, on vacations, anywhere, cruises. Uh, and they're slowly rebuilding the balance sheet, uh, the, the credit card balances, and they're slowly going down in the money they had saved uh, over time and all that wealth they, um, they accrued in their, in their houses. But that, it takes a while. And how close are we to things being a little bit more crunchy in that 60%, which could help us get inflation down? Well, let's talk about Canada very quickly. Um, you know, if you, let's look at, at houses and what people are doing with their mortgages. Historically, um, delinquent mortgages are around 25 basis points in Canada. So if we assume there's 400 people in the room here, there's one person who right now is delinquent on their mortgage. And that means that person, you know, both people in the couple lost their, their, um, their job and they're in an area where there was a big plant and the plant closed, house prices are going down quickly, they can't really sell the house and the, the bank just said, you know, we're taking the house. So you're just, you haven't paid in six months, like we're taking the house. That's, that's what a delinquent mortgage is. It's a really, really bad situation. And so 0.25% for you know, 2009 to 2019, it was the lowest you know, we've seen, and it's kind of a bottom. And when, as Jeff was saying, when we have cycles in high yield debt, we have the same cycles in mortgages. They spike, mortgage delinquencies spike, and then they come back down. And they spike to around 1% delinquency rates, and that's when we have stress. The banks go down to one point, one times book, credit losses are really high, there's more uncertainty, recession, et cetera. So the question is, also, so where are we relative to that? Well, um, I'd love you to try to guess where we are. So if, you know, 0.25 is kind of the bottom for 10 years, and then we spike at one, where are we on, on mortgage delinquencies, you think, in Canada? 0.25. We're at 0.1. 
Point one. So there's one person out of a thousand right now who's delinquent on their mortgage. Right. The mortgage market is so far from being stressed that we're, you know, we're miles away. We, we overdid it massively. So the question is then, okay, so maybe house prices need to come down. And we've seen house prices come down a little bit everywhere. And where do we, we get back to a point where it's, um, it's more normal? Well, that's a really difficult thing to analyze. But historically, pre-2006, in no a normal interest rate environment, and some people might argue, you know what, we're back to a normal interest rate environment. House prices in Canada, when they were expensive, they were around four and a half times household income. So take your household income, multiply by four and a half. That's the average house price in Canada historically when interest rates are normal. And right now, it's closer to nine. <laughs> yeah. So you can easily make a case for house prices to go down by half. You know, that's, uh, I've been surprised by less than that historically, but you, through a process like that, we might be surprised that, you, you know, you, you don't want to go to the extreme conclusion that, well, that means that Armageddon is coming. Because frankly, in Vancouver, I don't know if there's going to be a lot of delinquent mortgages out there if house prices go down 50%. Because there's not that many people who have jumbo mortgages out there. There are, but maybe there's not that many. So that's what we have to go through right now uh, when we analyze assets and portfolios is the process has started for asset prices to come back to normality and houses are known to be very slow moving asset price and asset prices. So maybe that's started, maybe it goes a, a lot further and maybe we're in a new paradigm and that doesn't happen. And we had the same in utilities earlier this year. Utilities were pricing in much lower interest rates and we were all wondering, what is, what is going on? Why are they still at that high? And in the last month, the market said, no, you know, it's not a new paradigm. Let's just slash these utility prices. And so utility stocks went down massively, even if interest rates didn't move. So we have to go asset by asset, stock by stock, and analyze what's priced in, where are we in the cycle? Is there still some stress that's possible? Clearly, yes. But I try to be, not to be too bearish, um, and I try to adjust with that. Um, so that's in a nutshell, my thinking, and then we can go into, you know, um, global value long short or large cap fund if you want. Oh, can we do that? Yeah. yeah, we can. <laughs> totally. You're actually scaring me. Well, you can always paint a scenario like that. I mean, I was, in, I was a bank analyst in 08, and frankly, you know, when you saw inside the sausage factory, it was just, there was blood everywhere. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but in the end, it all worked out. Right. So, you, you know, you can't really paint too bad of a picture. I'm just trying to tell people that maybe some things can get, can get worse. And, you know, we had a, a seminal moment, in my view, in the UK last week when the market, the bond market, finally told a developed market government, there's a line in the sand, and by just, this was the line. And it didn't seem like a big deal. It was a, a mini budget. There shouldn't have been a reaction in the markets. But there was, because the market decided that's the line in the sand that you can't cross. It was partly you know, um, made worse because of uh, LDI, which is we can get into or not, but it's a complex strategy that pension funds use to explore. Well, I think Jeff went into detail yesterday, so yeah. we don't need to. He, he mentioned it, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay, so you started off, I'm going to go right back to the very beginning, calling yourself naturally bearish. And I've never thought that of you. I've always thought of you as patient, um, deep value. That's a good point. Maybe I shouldn't be using the word bearish. I'm just very defensive, naturally. I try to look for bad scenarios and try to avoid them. 
which is why I've typically been uh, underweight banks, for example, because banks are complex securities. They have balance sheets that are too complex to analyze, and you have to rely a lot on the goodwill of the people telling you the numbers to make sure that, uh, that your investment is, is money good. And in Europe, that was not the case in 2012, and who knows with Credit Suisse right now if it's the case or not. But you have to be humble enough to say sometimes it's just really complex, and there's events that could make this particular investment really, really, um, really tough, and just walk away and invest in something else that has similar upside and much less downside. Okay, I'm going to play on that downside because we have a really cool chart that shows what you've done to focus on downside protection. I think we can pull that one up. The large cap fund that I'm talking about in particular. Yeah. Your down market capture is sitting at, what is that, 34%, 33.6%? How do you do that? Just by staying away from things? Uh, there's so many things that need to be done. Uh, you, so the patient uh, angle, I think, is the biggest one. There's dozens of companies that I love that I'll never own because they never get to an interesting price to me. But I, I know them very well. I would love to own them, but I need to wait for the price that I want to pay for them. That's a big part of the equation. Being humble in macro is also a big part of that. Not trying to predict interest rates is tempting um, when you think you, you figured it out and you have a lot of resources. But I try to be really humble in that, in that sense and wait for extreme prices. So in oil, for example, I just stayed away because on average it was a bad business for years and years. And then in 2020, the oil price went negative and the overall mood on oil and gas became very negative. Then you had the ESG pressure as well. So a lot of pensions and endowments were selling oil and gas stocks. So it was a kind of a perfect storm. You just had to be very patient. Um, so I made it a big, um, a big part of Canadian large cap fund, but that's more rare that it'll have a big investment in something more volatile. But if I think the alpha is there, if I think we can get returns out of it, we'll do it. But typically the volatility is lower because I invest in companies that compound slowly but surely have high returns, are a little bit boring, and then once in a while we'll go into sectors like oil and gas if, if, or, or even gold sometimes. If I think it's cheap enough, everybody hates it. You know, and I've said no a few times as it was going down, and then eventually, you know, we'll make it a position. But the core of the fund uh, is, you know, the Couchards and the Metros, the Loblaws, a few utilities. And on the, on the global side, that helps too, because Canadian large cap fund can go up to 49% foreign content. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the world is your oyster, and you can find way more securities that have low volatility, and a compounding ability that's higher than the market. But it's all based on patience. And I will take the opportunity to thank people who went through the walk in the desert with me for a few years as there was a lot of shiny objects out there with a lot of growth and stayed in the funds, mostly Canadian large cap fund, and now are getting the benefit of that patience and having had to explain again and again and again to your clients that, yes, you know, there's a lot of more returns elsewhere, but we need a little bit of money here because you never know when the market's going to come right back down. So market has come back down. Are you starting to look? Yes. On the, on the long side? Yeah. So the short side was, uh, it, it was quite a 2021 
and eventually we got some incredibly overpriced stocks. I mean, some of the stocks uh, that were on the screen in the previous presentation, I've, I've, um, I've shorted because for me it's more directional than something like Brett would do. Um, but you know, some software names were trading at 80, 100 times sales. And when you have pretty good analysts that figure out where that growth is going to be, you can get to a point where you are comfortable on the short side. So we had a lot of valuation-based shorts last year. Mm. And slowly this year, it has turned into more cyclical companies, um, companies that are going to be hurt by a recession. We have um, new business models that are going to be destroyed by a recession, like Carvana on the short side. But there's also some companies that have just bad balance sheets. They've been around a long time, but if we have a pretty big slowdown or recession, that their, their stock prices are going to go very significantly down. You always have to be, the shorting is incredibly difficult. You have to be humble. You have to look at everything and you need eyes behind your head. I mean, it's just anything can really make a stock go up 30, 40% has to be analyzed. So sometimes you'll find in a situation that's ideal. Um, somebody, somebody brought up a good example this morning to me. Um, they were asking about leisure stocks, you know, travel, et cetera. Um, and we made money on the short side with uh, a carnival uh, very early this year. In part because, to me, uh, there's a big difference between a carnival and a stock like an airline that's based in the U.S. Uh, and in, in a very basic sense that an airline might be bailed out by a sovereign because they're based in those countries. The cruise lines are based in tax-free jurisdictions. So there's no one that wants to bail them out at all. Um, so if, you're going, if things are going really badly, at least you don't have that risk that somebody will come in and you know, put a lot of money in it and save it. Um, but it is a dangerous, um, uh, a dangerous endeavor, and I try to be very careful. Position sizing is very interest is you know very important. It's typically 20 to 25 percent of net asset value in global value long short. That's in targeted shorts, and it's it can be um, looked at every day in terms of sizing. If it goes against you, maybe you want to reduce it because maybe there's something you got wrong. If it gets too big, quickly reduce it. So it's, it's a lot of blocking and tackling, but it's really where I think there's a lot of opportunity, way more opportunity for lower volatility and slightly better returns than Canadian large cap fund because it's global and you can short. Let's, let's talk about those two funds, Canadian large cap and the value long short, yeah. because I would think that Canadian large cap would be kind of a buy and hold, mm -hmm. let the thesis play out. Do you run the two funds differently, number one, and number two, somebody came up before and said it was a bit of a surprise that you were running a long short. Uh, so I'd love to, your reaction to that. Yeah, I, I had so many comments. Uh, people were trying to be, you know, have some tact and ask it in a nice way, but they were saying, I'm surprised somebody who has a value mindset is running a hedge fund type right. structure. And to me, it's exactly the opposite because job number one, two, and three in a long short fund is risk mitigation. It's protection of losses against losses. And shorts, when they go up, the, the size of the position goes up. And they're, they go against you and, they, and they're painful. So for me, it was really second nature. Downside protection is what I do. So it was a very easy transition. Let's walk through this chart. Okay, these are, your, these are the two mandates yep. that you've got overall. Fundamental bottom-up analysis is what I'm looking at as the thing that's yeah, so both, shared. Yeah, both, yeah, that's pretty much the only thing that 
they share. Yeah. Um, Canadian large cap can go up to 49% foreign content, whereas global value long short is um, really all cap, so small, mid, large cap, although my bias is always to large caps, as you can probably expect. Um, it's a, so the positioning on the long side in global value long short would be something closer to what I do in Northstar, for those who are uh, familiar with my positioning there. This is a fund that I run about a quarter of, and that's a global fund. And so these positions are similar. If you look at my positions in Northstar and then my positions on the long side in global value long short, the best ideas in global value long short will go into large cap. If they're big enough, if it's a 4% position on the long side, you'll find it in, in large cap as oh, well. Really? But you know, when it goes into you know, medium cap and smaller cap and positions that I want to be smaller because they might be a bit more cyclical, a bit more volatile, they'll be in global value long short, but I'm not gonna put them in, in large cap. Um, but uh, there's obviously more things to consider in, in global value long short, but to me, it just creates more opportunity. There was a lot of opportunity, and maybe I should mention that right now, but there was a lot of opportunity on the short side in the last 12 months, but also on the long side as value or more defensive stocks performed really well uh, relative to the Shopify's of the world, for example. But I'd say if you're interested in global value long short, just forget about the past performance and let's look forward and, and analyze really what this fund is. This fund is a equity type fund. We're trying to beat the MSCI world. We're trying to beat a global index of stocks by several percentage points a year with less volatility using tools that we didn't have before. So look at it as a large cap fund with more global mandate and more tools to create performance going forward um, and maybe even um, more tools to reduce volatility. They actually have, we have a slide that talks about identifying long and short opportunities in that uh, uh, value long short overall. And I like, there's one part in, and we probably have a, that as well. I mean, the long opportunities are what you've always done Really? Yep. Quality companies, sustainable businesses, don't overpay. Yep. That's a big one. But yes. talk to me about how you came up with these short opportunities, uh, and in particular merger arbitrage, although we can go into that in more detail later on. Yeah, so merger arbitrage is, is a term that sounds, uh, you know, dangerous and, 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 you know, sexy finance, but it's really boring, and it's a decent amount of work to get a little bit more return when you don't have anything else to do. I've been doing that in large cap. For 10 years, sometimes it's been zero, sometimes it's been 5% of the fund, sometimes it's been 10 when I can't find anything that I really like and I want, I want to be really patient. So that merger arb segment was large in January 2020, for example, and then it went to zero quickly during the month of March of that year. So that we, we play around with that. In this fund, we can also do merger arbitrage when there's a share exchange involved because I can short the acquirer and go long the acquiree oh. and make, the, the, you know, make money by um, the difference as this transaction eventually closes. Yeah, because you used to play merger arbitrage the other way, almost like a money market. I, we have a yeah. chart of that, actually, yeah. where you would, you know, not a share exchange, but a price a number, and you would buy it and then hold yeah. it for that a couple is, months. Or that that used to be a little bit simpler because you only bought the acquiry. So, for example, right now, Amazon is buying iRobot, which is these vacuum cleaners that you know run around your house. And obviously, it's to know the size of your house that they're doing that, which you know could get into a, a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, but you know the risks to closing if you buy iRobot right now with a spread of I think around one and a half percent to the closing price. You know, if you think it's going to close in three months, that's an annualized six. 
six and a half, is that good? What are the regulatory hurdles they need to get through? Are the regulators gonna think, well, Amazon has too much data now, they can't buy that company? I think financing's clearly not an issue. I think Amazon can pay for that tiny company. So th those are the considerations. That I did over 300 of those. I've been involved in over 300 of those in the last 10 years on the cash side and on the long short side. Well, it's slightly different. There's a few more considerations that we don't need to get into. I mean, you need to short the stock. so you. You have to pay 0.3% to borrow it usually, and then you have to pay the dividend on the share you've borrowed, and then if you own the acquiree, then you receive the dividend. So you know you need the spreadsheet to figure all of that, and how all these things are moving, and what the odds of closing are. But um, it's a lot of work for you know being patient and owning just a simple company. But it adds up to yield. It adds up to the equivalent of a yield, yeah, although it's a capital gain. But, yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's merger opportunities from both sides of the coin. Yeah, there's a lot right now. There's a lot of private equity money out there. There's still, no, nobody's creating a new private equity fund, but there's a lot of money out there and the, and the people sitting on all this cash want to deploy it. So there's still a lot of M&A or acquisitions from private equity of software names and a whole lot of different companies out there. I, you know, iRobot was, was a strategic, but it's a lot of money still out there. As we go back to the original point of the transition to less money out there, there's still a lot of private equity money. So yeah, when you're shorting a security, if you think there's an odd of them getting acquired, just you might want to just not be involved. Okay, talk to me though, because the other part of that uh, chart we saw, opportunistic shorts. Yeah. What does that mean? That just you? simply means, um, just like Dave would do, Brett, there's, there's a company I think is overpriced, more like Dave than Brett, but there's I think there's a company that's overpriced and I think it's so bad that you know, we can just short it and I think it's going to go down 50% and still be overpriced mm. or 30 or 40. So there's, uh, there's an overvaluation angle or there's a bad balance sheet angle and I think it's going to get, it's, it's going to go down in price because investors are underestimating the problems on the balance sheet as we go into slowdown and, and recession. Hmm. You started off by talking about the macro picture. Did you play into the inflation game? Not really. That, that's part of the, the macro that I try to be humble about. I, I used to, you know, I was younger and I knew everything and I was trying to see around two corners ahead. And now I just try to see around a half a corner. Um, and I'll be honest, inflation, I think most of us underestimated how high it was going to go. Mm. I'm in that camp too. I thought it was going to go higher, but not to the level it went to. I didn't expect central banks to be that late, although I guess I shouldn't be surprised anymore of how badly they they do things, but um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't play themes around inflation too directly. I just look at every company individually and see how it, they're impacted. Hmm. So you don't care where you are in the business cycle or does that? Well, I care. As I said earlier, I think um, there's a lot less options for central banks and governments to bail people out and to print money. So that restricts their action. I think it reduces the possibility of central banks coming in to save the day, which is a reflex that a lot of people have built in. And I'd say in March 2020, I did exactly that. I knew, you know, central banks would be coming in. Things were bad enough for stocks to go way lower, but we knew that at some point, governments and central banks would react, and they did. But, you know, I'd say for a lot of people in the industry, if you've been, you know, the younger people have been in the business for less than 12, 13 years, they've never lived in, in a world of interest rates that are at a real level. Mm. Um, you know, we've been in Alice in Wonderland and now we've just come through the, 
you know, through, uh, back up to the real world, and it's just, you know, the light is really bright, and we have to wonder, okay, where do asset prices need to go from here? Well, that's my next world. question, because I think about inflation, I think about business cycles, I think about earnings, and I think about valuations, and I think about multiples. Where do you think? Well, I think it's pretty clear that earnings estimates are too high, generally, if you take the S&P 500 as a whole. The question is always, how much is the market discounting? And that's what we try to assess every day. If, if the market has discounted things enough, then there are buys. And uh, the market's always slightly ahead of uh, some of these things. But I have to say, over the last 21 years, I've been sometimes surprised at how slow some of the information seem, seeps into the markets. Maybe that's one of them. I don't know. But we'll see. I, you know, I try to go stock by stock. And there's, there's a few that are very resilient, that can withstand you know, house prices going down, let's say 30%, and um, the economy slowing down, and finally all of this exaggeration seeping out. But it's always a struggle for me because I can always see one or two or three problems that could come from left field, and I have to pass and go to the next opportunity. The, you know, the shorting, the carnival kind of situation, they're rare, but they're there. The, the world's my oyster. I have about 90 securities, long and short, in global value. Large cap has, what, 35? So there's 4,000 stocks in the U.S., mm. uh, probably you know, five, six in, in Europe and Asia that are investable. Yeah. But if you're so worried about your brother's neighbor that's selling his house and you're worried about... I'm not the, worried about him at all. No, no, no <laughs> he's good. No, but the state of the market as, as a result of that and the Tim Hortons server, do you look elsewhere? Are you looking at emerging market? You have the mandate to go offshore, right? Are you looking at emerging markets right now? So, yes. I am trying, to, just taking one little step back, I'm trying to get better all the time. One thing that I'm trying to get better at is my timing and how fast I move into a particular investment. If things are bad and maybe getting a little bit worse, sometimes I'm too early and I've tried to learn from the best around me inside Fidelity and the long short fund has certainly pummeled into me that you need to respect momentum. And that was, that was a good lesson. I knew momentum worked as a factor historically. If you have you know, more momentum in your fund and, and otherwise you're going to do a slightly better. But that, I, that was pummeled into me. So do I want to move aggressively into Europe right now? No. Why? Because of all the things Jeff talked about yesterday, demographics, you know, governments are in, um, finances are in disarray. Financials are in pretty bad shape too. We, we, let's not go into that, but they're, they're, they're in bad shape. Uh, U.S. financials are in great shape. So I'm moving into what I think are obvious buys out there. There's global companies based in Europe that are getting U.S. revenues with a lot of Euro-based costs that are going to beat numbers quite significantly that have gone down massively because they're based in Switzerland or uh, Belgium um, or the same in the U.K. with the pound. So you have to take those opportunities. And there's enough, again, there's enough stocks to find two or three of those. Mm. So your theme on the long side then is those opportunities on international companies that have American revenue. Yeah. Do you find that there are themes on your short side? There, so that moves around very fast. I'd say a month and a half ago, after the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., there was a second wind of craziness in the clean tech electrification of transportation area. So there was an opportunity there to 
reshort some of the companies I had shorted earlier in the year that went up 40, 50%. Companies that are trading at two, three billion market cap don't really have a product, burning cash, hundreds of millions of dollars as if it was nothing every quarter. You know, some, so that's, I don't know if we're ever gonna see that again, but those are, are just a little too easy. The volatility needs to be managed. So these can double in two weeks. So you can't have a weight that's too large, obviously. That was one. I'd say right now it's less valuation centric. So, you know, crypto related securities that were massive shorts, even if Bitcoin went to $100,000, they existed last year and then they went, they went down massively. So I only have a, a little bit of exposure there, a little bit of exposure on the short side to clean tech. Most of the short book now is stressed balance sheets or private equity type companies that own funds that so there's companies with leverage inside, inside funds that have leverage owned by these companies that have leverage. So that's just a black box that probably, you know, if, if it was discounted, then you'd say, well, maybe it's, you know, they're not shorts, but they're priced as if we're back in, you know, 2017. When you say things move fast, though, are you finding that your turnover is a lot higher? On the short side, it's been high this year. And Interestingly, the volatility of the fund has been increased by those shorts because the most volatile stocks were the ones to short. Interestingly, the fund has a high risk rating because of that when the volatility of the fund relative to the stock market has been negative since I started. It's not absolutely not by design, but because those shorts were so volatile, I tended to move against the market you know, until about now. I thought it was supposed to be the other way. I, I thought... It's supposed to be the other way, but you would think that you would have a, a lower risk rating than a high risk if mm -hmm. your fund moves against the stock market. But hey, I don't make the rules. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the short side is now much more cyclically oriented. Okay, there's that thing. Where are you finding the most opportunities? We've kind of gone through a lot of this, but are you finding more long, arb, or short ideas? Right now, I'd say it's slightly more on the long side. Uh, merger really? ARB is, uh, yeah. I mean, the sh short ideas have a lot more restrictions to them because they're so much more risky. And therefore, you need to be very cognizant of that risk, make your position small, and make sure that you are going to be correct. So, and I can move around that, that's, that weight. I can be at 15% of net asset value, 20, 25% of net asset value. And last year, I went higher than that because I just thought this is an environment where you know the shorting opportunities are as high as they've ever been in history. I'm a student of history and I, I think it was really up there. It might have been the highest ever. Could have been higher than the tech bubble. But on, right now on the long side there's starting to be stocks that are analyzable and that look interesting. And I'm not saying I'm buying all of them but you know the, the buy list is certainly growing whereas my original you know giant list of stocks that I thought were interesting for shorting is slowly coming to yep. Okay, then uh, it goes without saying the, the ones you're looking at from the long side are defensive, but are they in, yeah. are you finding a sector that, you, yeah, yeah. Are you finding a sector like, I don't know, utilities or? Uh, utilities are not egregiously, uh, you know, down and they're, they're, they're fairly priced. I think I'm not finding a lot there. I'd say I'm, uh, the obvious cheap ones, and I have to really decide which ones I pick, is it's all in Europe, UK. And I mean, I own stocks in you know, Switzerland, Germany, France, Spain, 
but the short side is still mostly U.S. The egregious overpriced stocks are in the U.S. There's one, one or two in Australia, one in the Netherlands, um, but it's still mostly the U.S. It's the most liquid market too. So on the short side, that makes life easier. But there are opportunities in the U.S. as well. We're seeing bombs every day where you know a company reports and. Some of them go up 3% because you know, they missed revenue by 20, but some of them miss revenue by 3 and they're down by 25. So you know, there's opportunities in the U.S. as well. There's enough stocks there. Quality's higher, too, in general. Um, it's more innovative. Fundamentals are better. As, as we know, demographics are good in North America. So you have to balance all of these things out. But I think if you look out five years, is the rest of the world going to outperform the U.S.? There's, there's a ch good chance of that. I think it's higher than, than people think because all the money's in the U.S. now. Everybody's want, everybody wants the safety of, of U.S. They want out of Japan, uh, U.K., Europe. So we'll see. But that's what it seems to me. But you know, it's always bottom up anyway, so not, my macro review is not overarching that much. Hmm. Which is easier right now, finding a stock that will double? I don't think you target that, but, uh, or finding one that's going to zero. The answer to that would be it's easier to find a stock that will double if you give me enough time. Because like, you know, Metro and Kushtard and, you know, CP, they're probably going to double. I don't know how fast. could be Three years could be seven, could be nine, could be twelve. I don't know, but a stock going to zero—that is, you know, as, as Dave was saying, you know, sometimes you'll sell it at twenty-five cents. You know, will we we'll sell it when it's zero? Probably not. There, the absolute zeros. There's a few, but there's much less than compounders out there. Yeah, it's not like the uh, dot-com bubble or any of that where they did disappear. Yeah, well, a, a lot of the companies right now will disappear. It's just. To know which one and take it there as a short, I think is risky business. If you can just short it from absolutely egregiously overpriced to just overpriced, mm. you know, you've made a lot of money with little risk. I'm surprised you actually mentioned the grocers because you started off talking worried about CPI, yeah. worried about people in the lower echelons. Yeah. Why do you like grocers so much though? Because couldn't they be hurt? Well, they could be, but I mean, right now restaurants are going gangbusters because the people with money are going to restaurants. At some point, it's all going to meet in the middle. Dollar, we've heard from Dollarama that they're selling a whole lot more groceries, which means you know, the people who can least afford groceries are trying to find you know, ways to reduce their, their cost of basket. So you know, if, if you have a really, really tough recession, one of the only resilient businesses is staples and it's grocery business, it is still going to get hurt. I mean, everybody gets hurt. I mean, telcos, you could say, well, everyone, everyone's going to keep their cell phone, sure, but a lot of people are going to switch to a much cheaper plan. So it's really tough to find something that wouldn't have a that have downside in a recession, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, how do you manage downside protection with global value long short? Well, we managed, first, the first thing we did is we structured it simply. And so it makes it easy to understand, but also easy for us to manage the risks inside of it um, at the margin. It makes it easier. So, you know, we wanted to structure it with only equities. So I own stocks and I short stocks. And sometimes I buy stocks with cash I got from shorting stocks. That's it. There's no bank debt. There's no options, no swaps, no swaps, no futures. Um, there's, there's nothing complex in there that could make it slightly more difficult to manage or to understand. That was the first part. The second part is we limit the size of positions. We have an absolute limit of 5% in that fund, either on the long or short side. But you know, on the short side, I'll very rarely put on a short that's bigger than 200 basis points, so 
of net asset value. And typically it's around 70 to 80 basis points. So it's slightly under 1% positions on the short book. And you diversify a little bit more. So I probably have 35 to 40 names in there at 0.6.7% of the fund on average. So it's a, it's a slight, somewhat well-diversified group of stocks, although we always try to analyze if there's correlations that we haven't thought about. So diversifying the short book, making the fund simple, and on the long side, just owning companies that have much better downside protection. So we put these things together, and I think you saw the results from the beginning of uh, the launch. Yeah, so no leverage in there. So I wonder uh, uh, the structure, because David, I think, was 130-30. Yeah. Are you... It's it's typically so it's sold as a it's a one fifty fifty that's the maximum. But I typically would be around. I'm currently hundred and thirty percent long, forty percent short. So if you do one minus the other, I am long ninety percent of net asset value. And sometimes it'll be less than ninety. Sometimes it'll be eighty, seventy, sixty. I don't know what the last public number is. I think it's lower than ninety. It's probably on. 70 okay, but if it's running at 80 or 75, that, does that mean you're particularly bearish at that time? No, there's a few moving parts in there, and it's, that's part of the difficulty of explaining the fund, because I can do cash arbitrage, which is not cash, but uh, very low risk, low volatility. So if I'm 30% in cash arbitrage, that's effectively like cash, so you can reduce the net long by 30%, right? So, but it's... Is it really cash? It's, you know, so it's very difficult to say, looking at how net long I am, okay, Dan's bullish or Dan's bearish. You can't yeah. really, unfortunately, do that. You unfortunately have to talk to your wholesaler. I apologize for that. <laughs> okay, so then uh, we only have a minute left. Canadian large cap or growth value long? Global short. value, no growth there. Global, sorry, global. Yeah. <laughs> no growth, yeah. Um, Which one do you favor right now? Which one's your favorite child? They're different, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the large cap is kind of my, it's my old love. I've been running this fund for a long time and the global value long short has been around only a few years and it's, um, it, it's, it's helped me learn so many things. It's uh, reinvigorated my love for the job, um, you know, despite some, some tough days, but it's, it was part of the, of the learning process. I was in the ring and I was getting punched and I, I learned, okay, that's, that's how not to, not how to run this part of the fund. But I was actually on two, three years, no, three, four years ago, I was looking for a hobby. I started these pilot lessons to just like learn to fly a plane for fun because I'm like, ah, you know, my kids are older and I need to find a hobby. And then they came up with this fund. Like, would you like to run this? I'm like, yes. And I'm not doing that. I, just, I don't really want to be a pilot. <laughs> Flying's risky. It is very risky. It's uh, yeah, it wasn't really my style. You're right. <laughs> I hope you never have to fly. I don't Dan, think I great to have you here, man. It was great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. <laughs>